right, Thomas. So you saw Wicked last night. I did see Wicked last night. It was part of my research. <laughs> I, I was about to say, I, I was like, it's actually, I was like waiting to bring this up because it was a good segue to what we're talking about today in some, in some, in some way. Have you seen Wicked before? I saw Wicked uh, in 2010 was the last time that I had seen Wicked on stage. So, um, so it's been a while. It's been a hot minute. Um, I also read all the books. So, um, oh wow, yeah. So I was telling uh, my wife when we got out of it, she was like, "Was it like you remembered it?" And I was like, "There's in my mind, it's like this jumbled mess of like things that happen in the book and yeah. things that happen in the play." And uh, so it was, it was interesting. And, and, you know, I, I know, I know the songs uh, Mm -hmm. or at least the, the act one songs. I I literally, (laughs) I I looked at the playbill. I was like, I I only know like one song from act two. No, no good deed is the good, is the good song in act two. For good. For good. good. There's for good as well. For good, but also no, I think no good deed. Yeah. No good deed is is an act two. Those are the two. Those are the two big ones. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, But yeah, it was, it was my, my Steven Schwartz uh, research, you know? There was a moment to 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 set up our our movie today. There was there's the line in Wicked when they find when when Galinda and Elphaba become friends, mm-hmm. and Galinda gives Elphaba a a bow and like puts it in her hair, and she's like, "Wow, see, pink and green go well together." And I was watching Hunchback today, and there's like a close up shot of um of esmeralda and she's got the bright green eyes and the pink bow in her hair and i was like oh pink and green there you go <laughs> they go well <laughs> uh yeah i saw i've seen wicked twice i i saw it when i went to new york i i went i did a uh a brief story on wicked here um i went i did a field trip in high school our one of our classes we got to go to new york city this alabama uh school <laughs> got to go to new york city and it was pretty much like full of like every kind of new york tourist thing you could mm-hmm. do of Statue of Liberty, like uh, the the modern, uh, all these different places. But we did like three different Broadway shows, and we did Wicked, Fan of the Opera, and Chicago. Yeah, uh, we did we did Phantom and Beauty and the Beast when I went with, um, with my school trip. So I think Beauty and the Beast was gone at that point. I, it was also it was actually technically my sister's middle school trip, and I went <laughs> as an elementary schooler. As I can tell school. you, it was. It was 2002 because Ground Zero yeah, was okay. still like uh was oh, wow. yeah it was still like the fence with like the pictures hung on it. Oh wow! Oh wow! Wow! That's a that would be a sight. Wow! Um, no, we went in 2008. Is what it was, and most of my my teachers because what you do is they 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 put the list of musicals on the board that you could pick from. So it's all musicals <laughs> that we were like able to go see, and it was like can we pitch pick which one? And the teachers go. But can you please not pick Wicked? We've seen it three times. Oh, come on, teachers. And we're like, but we're paying for this trip. Yeah. 2008 we is want- like peak interest in Wicked. <laughs> yes, like- in Wicked. Exactly. And so we forced them to go see Wicked another time. And I think the next year, Wicked was off the board completely for like no no. <laughs> No class We're could not pick it doing again it again after our year. But it was funny because, again, when you go with high school kids, especially not all, all the high school kids like love theater. That first night of seeing Wicked, everyone was so just like jazzed about seeing Wicked. It was it was amazing. I was blown away by it as this uh, like with kind of the set design and how the sets come on by himself and off. And I was just mm-hmm. like, what is this magic? And the second night was fan of the opera and half the class just turned on musicals completely because <laughs> oh, no. we were, we were on the back row of the majestic at the, at the time the back row so 
everyone's on their phones or half people are on their phones. They're just kind of talking and chatting and the intermission, like it almost becomes this revolt between like half the group being like, yo, shut up. And like, I remember one, my, one of my buddies who, who was in theater, he comes, he goes, Hey guys, just so you know, when you have your phones on, they can see you. Like he was just like going at them. Well, it was kind of fun. I was, I was telling my, my wife when we were headed over there was asking, you know, when did you see it? And I, I knew the exact date because it was the date of like a blizzard in South Carolina. And, uh, wow. and cause we didn't think we were going to get to go, but mm. she found the touring cast from, uh, when I saw mm. it. And, mm. uh, Glenda, when I saw it was, uh, Helene York from, um, the other two, the HBO max, series oh, wow. she's like the lead in that show yeah well look how that comes around it's, just, <laughs> it's funny when you see someone who who ends up being big someone was just like sending me a text of like john bernthal and the auditions for like project Greenlight season three and he didn't get it um <laughs> sad season oh, three I, was that the no okay no, feast, no i'm, I'm thinking feast feast was season three i'm re-watching them right I, now. I was it's, thinking it's, season four i was like john bernthal wanted to be in the the leisure class or whatever that movie no was no called. i'm rewatching. i'm rewatching season four right now anyway enough about that i know we're, we're rambling well, we're talking about today we mentioned steven schwartz we're talking about the hunchback of notre dame and this whole month we've been talking about alan minkin movies and also kind of in like also with disney renaissance period all that stuff um yeah we kind of jumped the gun last week when you said we should have been sponsored by disney i don't know if we should have done that now um, <laughs> after, this, after this past week in strike news um so we don't want that we are don't an independent near, podcast we, we, we come are and disney. always have been yes always have been but yes yeah, so we've been talking about alan minkin and the disney animation stuff of this period of the 90s but what have we discussed exactly thomas I mean, we've we've made a lot of references back to Little Shop of Horrors, but but just kind of looking yeah. how uh, kind of charting Alan Minken and Howard Ashman as writing partners, as songwriting partners, and specifically how they told story through music and seeing mm-hmm. how that influenced Little Mermaid, how that influenced Beauty and the Beast into uh, Ashman's work kind of on the groundwork of Aladdin and then becoming after Ashman's passing uh, just the idea of, of Minkin working with other writers, but also kind of the lasting stamp that Howard Asherman made. We talked about how Tim Rice very obviously kind of knew yeah. Howard Ashman's writing uh, tendencies and tried to keep Aladdin, you know, somewhat in, in those same lines. Um, and, and we've also been tracking Minkin's composing prowess and, and the way, you know, it talked about how uh, the instrumentation of Little Mermaid was still pretty close to Little Shop, but mm-hmm. with Beauty and the Beast, he starts experimenting with kind of more classical orchestration. With Aladdin, he gets into, uh, you know, kind of world music or experimenting with other sounds. And we'll continue to see, I think, definitely some more of that today with with like a very uh, large orchestra, uh, medieval choir, like very big score. Yes, uh, there's some there's some direct references I have of what they're pu- what he's pulling or what they're all pulling from him mm-hmm. and Schwartz in this movie. Yeah, and then and then something I think we kind of came away with at the final part of our Aladdin episode is that Minkin's getting a lot of power at this point. He has won yeah. lots of Oscars uh and six six and four years at that yes. point in time. That's wild. And with Aladdin, what we came away with was that it felt like the first one where the script may have been sacrificed here and there to make way for the songs. Uh, it, yeah. it really feels like like Minkin and, and, and his songwriting partners are kind of the creative force 
at this point uh moving forward in disney so it'll be interesting to see how that feels uh moving into hunchback and we talked a little bit similar with some of that stuff with our patreon episode of newsies Mm -hmm. for those that go check that out because we talk about how like in some cases like the song is almost better than kind of the story but then sometimes we add songs in there just because we need to like pad the soundtrack it feels like uh that's the one that felt like that the most with Anne margaret stuff yeah. um yeah it, 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 but it's been interesting it's weird and this is kind of off top with mink and stuff but it's been interesting kind of looking back at some of the stuff we talked about in terms of the animation side and all these other things we again really with the strike stuff it's been in my head of like the whole newsy stuff we talked about how that <laughs> that that came into play also with aladdin with robin williams only paid seven seventy five thousand dollars for his work on aladdin and then disney owning his essentially voice for however long and profited off of it anyway that's a separate thing but yeah we've been it's interesting kind of seeing how minkin has progressed fully as a composer and i think with this one with hunchback i think uh, he, he got a lot of flack saying like he could never work as well without ashman because they're saying that ashman was the driving force behind it all but i but with hunchback today to kind of tip my hand it's like i feel like of the ones we've covered so far and what, as what i've seen to this period like he really comes into his own mm-hmm. in this movie to where it's one of his most complex scores, I think. Yes. Or at least it's it's one of the best, like where you don't know where the score begins and the song begins, if that makes sense. We yeah. talked about how, like with Aladdin, how it just like hops right into the song sometimes. Mm-hmm. Something about this, the transitions are stronger. The way the score melds into the song, how the song mel- melds into the score, how he he, he kind of re- has these reoccurring kind of motifs and themes. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. throughout and, and, this and movie. Yeah, this one's very. This one does a very good job at, at weaving the motifs through almost everything. So all the songs, there's there's not a song that like comes out and you're like, oh, that doesn't sound like anything else in this movie. You know, it, yeah. everything's kind of woven into each other in a way that makes it all feel very cohesive musically yes. between the songs and the score. With with Heaven's Light and Hellfire being just a mm-hmm. prime example of literally how you take two contrasting characters, two opposing characters, and create two two opposing songs in a way, but still dealing with kind of the same of a of of a of a different type of I want song because mm-hmm. Quasi kind of has like two I want songs here in a way with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, we're talking about Hunchback of Notre Dame, and. Essentially, it's based on the 1831 novel by Victor Hugo, uh, directed by Gary Trosdale and Kirk Wise, uh, produced by Don Hahn. So kind of the, the directing team and producing team is the same as Beauty and the Beast. Um, stars Tom Holtz, Demi Moore, Tony Jay, Kevin Klein. Tom Holtz, Quasimo, Demi Moore as Esmeralda. Tony Jay as Frollo. Kevin Klein as Phoebus. Paul Candell as uh, Clopin. Gargles being Jason Alexander, Charles Kimbrough, Mary Wicks, and then David Ogan Stiers, who is Cogsworth, mm-hmm. yeah. as um, the kind of cardinal. Love, I this, love it, David Ogan Stiers. Archdeacon, Archdeacon, yeah. Pop up. I'm a big, I'm a big mash guy, so always yeah. happy to see David Ogan Stiers. So as you know, Quasimodo is the hunchback of Notre Dame. He is the bell ringer, and he was an orphan who was taken in by Frollo, this kind of the judge, Claude, uh Claude Frollo, who is the kind of evil character, and we introduce Esmeralda in the town or in Paris at the kind of Feast of Fools. I won't spend too much time. I'm just going through it. 
they all come together and we get this big, probably the darkest Disney animated film they had seen in a long time at this point in time, coming in 96. And so with that, Thomas, what's kind of your history with the hunchback of Notre Dame? This one, this one was like right in my sweet spot for like Disney movies. I'd say this one and like Hercules were like, I was the perfect age and and my sister was like the right age where we were both really interested in these movies. We saw, saw this one in theaters. We bought all the merch. She had the, the um, Esmeralda and the Esmeralda Barbie and the Phoebus Ken. I had the action (laughs) figures. We had uh, hunchback bed sheets like oh wow like this one this one hit right when I, I was like five and and she would have been like nine so we were like all in hunchback um and yeah it's it, it's one i didn't revisit for a while mm-hmm. uh and then you know came back to probably in, in college and in like the digital age and it was one of those where i think a lot of people our age came back to this one and were like whoa this one yeah. is kind of crazy um, but it is, I, I have always kind of been fascinated with kind of the history of Paris and, and French literature. I was a big, I'm a big Dumas guy. Um, I don't know how we've gotten away without doing a single Dumas adaptation on, on this podcast <laughs> at this point. But, um, so I read, I read Hunchback in like high school and, um, yeah, so, so a lot of interest in it, but, um, has been an interesting one to kind of continue to come back to. And there's been a, it's one that I think has had a lot of discourse on the internet mm-hmm. in, in the past, maybe 10 years or so. So yeah, yeah I feel like, I, I, I feel like you've once said, and maybe I'm wrong with this, where like, this is one of those movies where that it was labeled underrated for so long. It became properly rated. Yes. Yes. Is it is adequately okay. rated. Now. Yeah. <laughs> if somebody ever goes to me like, Oh, you know, what's underrated hunchback. I'm like, no, it's not. Everyone loves hunchback. Like, <laughs> There's no one out there like shitting on hunchback. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you never know. Um, no, but I, I think it's one that I think can be forgotten by people is what I will say. It, it's one of the lesser seen ones or lesser revisited ones. Maybe sometimes with this, yeah, my history, weirdly, I don't know how I remember this, but I feel like I remember seeing this poster at the theater, at, at my local theater, and I remember wondering what, um, this is so stupid, uh, only in theaters June 21st. I was like, is it only in theaters for that day? Like, as a child, I was like, thinking, can I only have one day to see this movie? I was so like, what is this? Um, but I for some reason remember that because I remember this poster uh of quasimodo uh in the bells with the with the bird um yeah this is one i've revisited several times and i'm always i'm always just enthralled by the animation of it all because mm-hmm. this is one it, it's it's interesting kind of seeing there's almost a reason why i think hunchback and beauty and the beast are kind of my two favorites of this period and it's by the same directors kirk wise and gary trosdale were like just the animations feel like legitimately feels like paintings. Like they, mm-hmm. they, they, they're really looking at references of the era and of the period and they're two French adaptations or mm-hmm. two adaptations of French stories as well. But there's just something about them that I've always found striking. And again, like I said, I revisited later. It's what kind of came up like this one's really, this one's always one of the stronger ones. I think because people revisited it now because it's darker, mm-hmm. I think people now, where I think sometimes as we got older at the millennial generation um, gravitated towards the more darker content that maybe at the time 
we weren't allowed to watch or we thought was as good as we later became to think it was. Um, so it's one I've appreciated for, for a long time and still always kind of impressed by it when I revisit it. But yeah, we'll, we'll dive into, we'll get into the favorite scenes and all that stuff in discussion later, but let's dive into the history of how this movie got into production because we're introducing a new character in this whole story. That would be Stephen Schwartz. But after finishing Aladdin and also Newsies, Alan Menken moved on to his next project, and that would be Pocahontas. And Menken and Ashman, they planned on working on Pocahontas together after Aladdin. Because of his death, they never actually started work on Pocahontas. So Menken was going to work on Pocahontas with Tim Rice, who was the lyricist on Aladdin after Ashman's passing. But Menken found it rather difficult to work with Rice due to the geographical distance between the two mm. rice was living in london while minkin was living in new york at the time so i'm not sure who made the call but disney's head of development at the time stated that it was hard to get rice in the room with minkin because he was traveling so much so they needed to find a new lyricist and that's when they reached out to stephen schwartz and schwartz had been working in theater for decades having create having created such classics as Godspell and Pippin, which he made before the age of 25. Wow. Which is insane. That's, a, that's the crazy those... thing with like Steven Schwartz and Sondheim. Where the people are just like, oh, yeah, well, they worked on this. And you're like, how? They're, how could, How are they, you know, how yeah. are they still working at this point in their careers? And they were like, oh, well, you know, Sondheim was 20 whatever when he did West yeah. Side Story. And you're like, oh, of course. Okay. That's why, that's why I worked for 60 years or whatever. But yeah, Schwartz, I remember because he's a character in uh, Fosse Verdon. Mm. When they when when Fo- when Fosse is doing Pippin and like Fosse just like hates Schwartz because he's like the young <laughs> kid who keeps trying to like get his play done. He's like he made Godspeed because I don't care. I made Chicago or whatever he says. Um. Anyway, but after finishing Children of Eden in 1991, Schwartz apparently was burned out with the entertainment industry and he actually left the theater world to pursue his graduate degree in psychology. What? I never knew this. That's crazy. It, se- it seems he even began teaching classes at NYU during this time on psychology while getting his degree. And that's when Disney called. <laughs> and they and Schwartz went out to L.A. to meet with them. And he soon realized that second career of psychology wasn't going to work out. This is the this is the equivalent of like the action movie when they go to find the like, you know, was it? Uh, um commando when he's like living in the woods and chopping wood (laughs) he's i don't i don't do that anymore well it's all it's another thing is i think a bokeem woodbine dead presence who was like the psychotic guy he's into like a preacher or whatever just like you're like wait what are we doing (laughs) it's it's like what and it's just like yeah so he's like doing psychology and and nyu just like after he did like a a three musicals like yeah i'm kind of done i don't want to do this anymore and then Pocahontas comes. And so he goes and begins to work with Minkin on Pocahontas. And this would become the first film that Minkin would work on without Howard Ashman. And Minkin mentioned that early on, there were moments of tension between Schwartz and Minkin because of Schwartz's ability to write music and Minkin's ability to write lyrics for songs. Oh. But soon they began working well together. And similar to Ashman, Schwartz would begin to have a hand in certain script elements of Pocahontas. And while Pocahontas wouldn't prove as successful as Disney's previous film, The Lion King, only making a minuscule $346 million at the box office, the soundtrack was a big hit. So Disney would then send Minkin and Schwartz multiple projects they had in the works after the after Pocahontas. And Schwartz and Minkin agreed the story they wanted to work on the most 
was The Hunchback of Notre Dame, mainly because of its darker themes and how it dealt with being a social outcast. That was kind of at the core of it. And this would reunite Mencken with the creative team behind Beauty and the Beast, which was, as I said earlier, producer Don Hahn and directors Kirk Wise and Gary Trosdale. Now, Victor Hugo's classic novel became a possibility for adaptation at Disney in 1993 when development executive David Stanton uh, read a comic book version of the novel. And he felt like there was a lot of potential for an animated film there because of the kind of vibrant colors yeah, I suppose, of it Not the first one I'd read and be like, oh, the kids are going to love this one. Because uh, yeah. there, there's another male character and the Phoebus kind of takes on both of those roles in this movie, but mm. it is literally just about four men who are all trying to sleep with a 16 year old. Like uh, that is, yeah. that is the book. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and I believe like it, it's a much darker term. I think she dies in the end is what it mm. is. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it's darker than what it ended up becoming uh, essentially. But yeah, it's like, wh- why do this one? But apparently they're like, yeah, this, there's some great images in this book. We could do like really some cool things with this. And he would pitch it to Jeffrey Katzenberg and Katzenberg would agree to make it. And after the completion of being the beast directors wise and Trosdale, one day they got a call from Katzenberg and he told them to drop everything what they're doing. They're now working on hunchback of Notre Dame and why stay. They believed it had a great deal of potential for both memorable characters and fantastic visuals. And Don Hahn said they wanted to make this a more kind of emotional film, a more like story about humanity was the thing. Because a lot of the previous incarnations of Hugo's novel, Hollywood incarnations of Hugo's novel, kind of made Quasimodo like a monster. And it was yeah. more of a monster movie mm-hmm. was the thing. And they wanted to be a story about humanity and being outcast and all of that. After Beauty and the Beast, Trosdale and Wise joked that because of this being their second movie based in France, they were only going to direct French classics from now on. So hopefully Cyrano and Fan the Opera be up next for them, is what they were saying. <laughs> Soon the animation team would embark on a research trip to Paris, where they had the opportunity to tour the city with a respected Parisian history scholar, and they got a complete tour of Notre Dame. And Wise remarked that it's so rare on an animated film where you can actually visit the location the story is supposed mm-hmm. to take place in, which I I never thought about that, but that's true. It's like most animated stories, you're you're inspired by certain things, but you're actually, hey, I get to go to the actual location yeah. this is at. The production would hire Tab Murphy originally to write the film screenplay, and early on in the script, Murphy had Quasimodo, Quasimodo serve as kind of the the Cyrano between Phoebus and Esmeralda, playing more of a matchmaker. But soon they disregarded that, and as Phoebus became more of an integral part of the story, it turned the more of this love triangle between these three characters. For writing the characters of the Gargoyles, they were inspired by several passages in Hugo's novel. This is that Quasi talks with stone gargoyles in it uh, at Notre Dame. They took that and decided to make that more literal and magical, I guess you could say, creating the characters of Victor, Hugo, and Laverne. Now, initially, their names were to be Lon, Charles, and Anthony. Mm. For Lon Chaney. Uh-huh. Uh, who else who else played the uh hunchback? Charles Lawton. Of course he did. That that was the 39 version. Uh, And Anthony Quinn. Okay. Anthony Quinn. Uh, They then changed it to Chaney, Lawton, and Quinn. But Mm. they were worried about legal issues with all these kind of names of the actual people. So 
They changed it to Victor and Hugo after the story's author, while Laverne was a reference to a very obscure reference to Laverne Andrews, who was one of the singers in the Andrew Sisters singing group from the 1930s and 40s. If you know the era, you'll know their most famous song, Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy. Yes. Um, from Company B is what it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was their song. So she, so Laverne is named after one of the sisters in that singing group. Uh, for the character of Frollo, the team looked toward Rafe Fine's performance as goth in Schindler's List as mm. kind of inspiration behind. I feel like that's Frollo. just kind of like everyone in the '90s. Anytime you read an interview with anyone who played like a villain in the '90s, they're like, <laughs> "Oh yeah, no, Rafe Fine's like huge inspiration." Just shows you how great he was in that movie. That's yep. the thing. The first person cast in the film in 1993 was Cindy Lauper. <laughs> Okay. She had been she had been hired a week after reading with the directors, and Lopper believed she was going to be playing Esmeralda. You really want Esmeralda to have a thick Jersey accent? But she was shocked to find out she was playing Quinn, the female gargoyle. Oh, okay. Though she does have a thick accent. Okay. Yeah. Soon they realized Lopper's voice was too young to be a wise mentor to Quasimodo, and she would later be re- released from the role. But there were reports that she did recordings for the movie. Um, and they let her go casting Mary Wicks in her place. Mm. And it would be Mary Wicks's final role before she passed away. Legend. They also, hi- they also hired, we covered her in white Christmas, white Christmas. Yes. That's what I thought. Okay. Uh, they hired, they also hired Charles Kimbrough as Victor, who was working on the hit show Murphy Brown at the time. Yep. And, and Kimbrough was initially unimpressed with a adapt, anime adaptation of Hugo's classic being made but that all changed when we saw how much they put how much research they put into the movie they hired sam mcmurray for the from the tracy ullman show for the role of hugo but after some recording sessions they let him go and katzenberg would suggest comedians like arsenio hall david letterman and jay leno to possibly play one if not all three gargoyles was his idea oh wow yeah, picture Letterman and Leno being in, a, in this on the press tour for this movie together. That would be amazing. No, um, they would eventually cast Jason Alexander in the role after his performance in The Return of Jafar. Oh, is what it was from Disney in '94, the director video movie we talked about briefly last week. Uh, for the role of Quasimodo, they initially offered the role to Meatloaf. Oh, nice. He could have done they that. Were, yeah, but they would not come to agreement with his record company was why. Yeah, they, and so then we had to give it to the guy from Amadeus. I mean, come on. Well, they went to someone else before oh, that. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, yeah. They then approached Mandy Patinkin for the role. Okay. How many How many of these movies has he been up for in the series? <laughs> I know, right? Uh, but during his audition, Patinkin said, hey, guys, this isn't for me. Like this, this, like this, He's like, I can't do that. Basically, he was saying his style was colliding with what the producers wanted with the character. I'm a Sondheim guy, guys. Come on. (laughs) Um, They would then cast Oscar-nominated actor Tom Hultz uh, in the role. And during his audition, Hultz said he noticed that everyone in the room was looking down when he was auditioning and singing and said they were looking at drawings, or I think they were closing their eyes, trying to imagine how the voice matched with Quasimodo was the idea. For the role of Esmeralda, they would cast Demi Moore, mainly due to her distinct, deeper voice, which was something that was the opposite of what most of the female leads in Disney animated films have been up to that point. For the role of Phoebus, they modeled it on Errol Flynn and John Wayne. So they wanted this kind of heroic 
type. And mm-hmm. the person at the top of their list was Kevin Klein. Yeah. And I wonder if it's because he had just played Douglas Fairbanks in the Chaplin movie mm. where he's like a SWAT. He's play, basically playing mm-hmm. the, the, the original swashbuckler. Um, I wonder if they're like, hey, he'd be great for this kind of like hero hero type role. For the role of Frollo, they cast Tony Jay, who had actually previously worked with Trosdale and Wise on Beauty and the Beast as the insane asylum warden that we we gave him uh, Beatrice Strait yeah. earlier earlier in the month with that. Um, Jay said getting the role as Frollo was his bid at immortality. <laughs> they, however, the reports, reports said they actually offered it to Anthony Hopkins initially, but he turned it down. For the role of Clopin, they cast Paul Candell uh, after seeing him in a musical version of The Who's Tommy. Oh. Yeah, not Who's Tommy, but The Who's <laughs> play Tommy. Tommy. Uh, they compared the role to Joel Gray's portrayal of the MC in Cabaret. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so with the kind of casting of all that and the team coming together, let's jump into favorite scenes here. So, Thomas, what's some of your favorite scenes or favorite aspects of the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, I mean, as far as like visuals, music, performance, everything, I think out there is like one of the best like animated scenes ever. Like, I think we've we've something we've talked a lot about this month is kind of as you go mm-hmm. through the Disney Renaissance, watching them kind of try and integrate 3D animation into. Uh, hand-drawn 2d animation and i think watching it especially this time around watching out there i was just like oh they did it they've, they've done it like it just it just works yeah. here there's multiple shots yeah. where he's you know standing on the on the mm-hmm. s- the steeple of the church yeah. and the camera's panning around him and you cannot tell what is 3d and what is 2d like it yeah. is it is flawless and he's he's sliding down the the gutters and the mm-hmm. camera is able to just like keep circling around him and do all these crazy angles that you just could not do with 2D yeah. animation alone. Um, and then on top of that, Tom Holtzism is like it's I, I remember I, I had seen this movie when I was a kid. And then, you know, when I got a little bit older, my dad showed me Animal House and mm-hmm. just like at some point it just being like, oh, that's tom holt sing, singing this like that is his <laughs> voice and it isn't i it's it, i have no idea you know and and yeah. it's so talented i think it's it's such a like clear vocal performance and and it is it is one of the best of like you know we've talked about kind of voice doubling and some of these other yeah movies and and just for him to show up as like a very talented actor and then mm-hmm. also be able to like belt it like that is insane yeah and we'll go into kind of how that all came to be but yeah it's like he he really is incredible because he he adds this not just in the singing but also in in the the voice work he does of an innocent person like that's the whole thing they talk about how they didn't want to make quasi look appear as a monster Mm -hmm. is the thing and holtz's performance like from the beginning just makes him just so innocent and like kind of naive and like you you feel for this guy mm-hmm. is the thing and you want him but the out there sequence with they said the 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 kind of combination of CG they're really pushing it the barriers here with how they're doing it and I think just a gorgeous shot here's the thing about this movie I think you could pick any 
of the song, most of the songs, but I, I would say a, a one of five, mm-hmm. and say this is one of the most beautiful animated sequences I've seen in a Disney movie. Mm-hmm. Like honestly, I feel like I think with Bell's Notre Dame, I think with Out There, I think with Hellfire, I think with even God Help the Outcast, like Topsy Turvy. Like there's there's all these songs like where the animation is just miles ahead in some cases mm-hmm. of what we've seen before. Yeah. And, but out there's being just like a beautiful I want song. Also, out there's the one that's gone viral over these past few years. On yeah, TikTok. yeah. Well, I mean, it's all you know. I think it's the that that one piece from uh, the like coming soon on Disney VHS that you know that that kind of supercut they used to run uh, on yeah. the VHSs that's that's also gone viral. Is like it it has out there like it became a kind of an instant piece of like you know disney musical lore but um but i think you know within the alan minkin kind of trajectory of it all something we've talked about is minkin and ashman and 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 you know minkin as he's continued always having very strong i want songs starting Mm -hmm. with somewhere that's green but um this i think i think this this is it like this is the pinnacle i think it is just like the i just love the the orchestration of the dom 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 like it is incredible and uh it's so clear you know it, it immediately gets gets you to this point of like oh this this guy just wants social he wants to socialize yeah. he wants companionship he wants friendship and, and they do a great job of like with the story wise of like he builds the model of notre dame the city of paris and it's like he lives vicariously through these figures he makes where he creates a figure for himself that he actually puts in the in the town square and he lives the dream of like, I always want to be out there. And like, I mean, it really is just the, what the, it's a very strong, I don't, I don't say it's the strongest of all the ones we've seen, but it's a very strong want that it we keep coming back to is that he just wants to be accepted mm-hmm. by people. And it's one where like, we see it from the opening scene of him to the last scene of him, it's him trying his best to get towards that point to be accepted. Yeah. And I don't know if we've really seen that through the ones we've discussed where the one is that strong that carries us literally from the opening frame of that character to the closing frame of that character, essentially. Like that's right. Yeah. It's yeah. a massive, it's a massive arc. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't get it. It, it, it. It's like he, ha- it's very similar to Aladdin where he has like parts where he thinks it's happening and then it's a kind of the false outcome where yeah, it but it's, goes it, back. It's also kind of the most complex I, like character journey I think we get for for one of these people because it is kind of introduced. It's it's given to him. It's like oh he has one friend, and then it's like oh maybe Phoebus is a friend. Maybe he's a rival. Like it you know yeah. it 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 um it's not like it's it's not like uh you know aladdin's want where he kind of gets his want immediately but then he's worried about you know how he's gonna how yeah. he's gonna keep it um it's the repercussions of the one yeah like, of, yeah of yeah this it's like he he de- well, like well quasi gets it where he's accepted like the, the, we'll, we'll go into topsy-turvy here with the feast of fools because that's an incredible sequence and the way he gets what he wants and that's immediately ripped out from underneath him like there's this beautiful moment that I didn't notice till this time where they actually cut to a close of quasi crying 
mm-hmm. when they make him when they're all everyone's applauding him and clapping for him and he's been named the feast of fools and it's these happy tears of he's being accepted which then later <laughs> contrasts of tears of sadness mm-hmm. later as the movie goes on like it's very uh like it's just because actually they bring it back later this is skipping way ahead but talk about him crying when he sees esmeralda kiss phoebus mm-hmm. and they bring out there back if i'm not mistaken is out there heaven's light it's like a like a haunting memory where it's mm-hmm. like faint and he starts to cry again it's just a beautiful moment where it's like it's like he's been wishing for this thing he thought he had it and it's now just a memory essentially mm-hmm. and it's, it's just a beautiful heartbreaking thing um but yeah topsy turvy is great which is kind of the the incredible uh animation of it all with the crowd work they mm-hmm. do in this movie is insane yeah the the continue because it's a very rhythmic song and then you've got like you've got the guys with balloon heads and they're popping each other on the rhythm or the guys that are like swapping heads yeah. on the beat um yeah it's 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 a really wild uh animation sequence for sure yeah um what i want to want to backtrack to is the bells of notre dame because <laughs> that to me is like one of my favorite sequences in an animated Disney animated film mm. because it's so well, right from the opening. Cause it's, it's like we've had these prologues throughout. We, we, we have the Beauty and the beast talked about. It's just like the opening like narration of the mm-hmm. enchantress or whatever. Aladdin, you have Arabian nights, but this, and then, and, but also being, the which beast is, which have, is a, a kind of a joke on the prologue as, as we talked yes. about it's, it's, it's introducing you to the fact that like, you don't have to take this movie very seriously. Um, yes. whereas this one is kind of the opposite. It's yeah. It's like, no, you're taking it seriously. Like it, it's, it's like, it's a dark opening for a kid's movie. Mm-hmm. You introduce death, you introduce internal damnation, you mm-hmm. introduce killing a, killing a child. All of that Racism. is in the first <laughs> racism it's all in the first six minutes of this movie you're like all right it's a good family matinee for the kids mm-hmm. like it's just it feels such a a swing is the thing and i think when you watch that opening from when the camera comes from the clouds of notre dame down to the city of paris like it's leaps ahead it feels like an animation of what we've seen to that point i feel like that's what's so and talk about this period of disney renaissance stuff what's so amazing is seeing how far they're pushing it every movie it feels like in terms of either animation music or storytelling Mm. um and this one feels like just a great mix of all three of those things yeah and and so it it, it actually i I remember on being the beast i talked about how what one of my pet peeves with that one is they introduced the beast like too early in a way Mm -hmm. and here they kind of play with that and introduce quasi in a perfect way where you're kind of building to him being this like monster, this outcast. And then we turn around with this kind of like joyous person mm-hmm. when you first see him, it's just a great kind of turn. Also last thing on this and we'll, I'll, we'll go to the next thing, but um, I love that this is the first one we've, we've covered where we come back to the opening because mm. Clopin comes in and he's like, and kind of we, we reprise it. Mm-hmm. Where it's like it's like it's actually saying the moral of the story: who is the monster, who is the man type thing. Right. And this yeah. is when you realize you kind of find out Arabian Nights. You don't do that with. You don't come back. It's, it's to, got that well, and and because yeah, when he starts singing, it is kind of set like you know he's he's telling the story, kind of framing device yeah. uh, with the kind of the little girl and everything. Um, mm-hmm. Which I think they did with the live action Aladdin. Yeah. Aladdin, 
Well, I mean, yeah. Well, Aladdin, they do. It's 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 genie. To, well, yeah, genie. They don't really know at first, but it's genie talking to his two kids. Yeah, is what it is. Um, but and they come back to it. But in, in, in the the anime film, they don't come back to right. the peddler. Mm-hmm. They don't come back to the peddler till the third Aladdin movie. Where it's like, <laughs> oh, it was all one big story. But here we actually come back to it, and it feels more. Well, I think kind of the musical tie-in ways that we kind of we shape we we it's full circle mm-hmm. where we've told you this story we've told you the meaning now go off into the world and and hopefully you're a better person from what you've heard from mm-hmm. the story and i think that's something that they hadn't fully done yet and the they like they had the opening part of it but they never come back around yeah. like you don't hear the yeah. narrator at the end of being the beast this is the first time where it feels like kind of cohesive yeah well and tying it back you know i i think uh a lot of times Minkin and Ashman, you know, would highlight the would find the like big song, which was often mm-hmm. kind of like the the middle of like the the midpoint ballad or whatever, because you know, like Little Mermaid ends on a, bringing back part of your world. Mm-hmm. Uh, Beauty and the Beast ends on bringing back uh, Beauty and the Beast tales all this time. Yeah. But but nobody had ever done the like bookend songs. Uh, yes. That, that that is more common within like a stage musical. Yeah. Yes. But. I'll, yeah, I'll let I'll let you jump on what your next <laughs> thing is because I have a lot, but I, I don't want to spend too much time because I know people. It's a lot of stuff in here. But what's your what, what's your next thing? Well, in an effort to keep it not all songs, um, <laughs> I'm a big Kevin Klein guy. I'm a big Phoebus love guy. Kev- love love a Fe- love the Phoebus intro. A lot of fun. Yes, yes. With the with the two guards and and yes. him kind of messing around with him. Instantly, you get this this you get a great idea of this character. And then I think his scene with Frollo as well when he's kind of brings him in and he's just yes. immediately skeptical. He's got that he's like yes. you yes. you brought me back from the war. I'm the like obviously the best soldier in the war. You brought me back from the war to like round up gypsies. And sorry, yeah. we will be we'll be using gypsies in the in the turn in the context of the movie, but uh, yes. I understand yes. that is yes. not the uh preferred term um but yeah it's just immediately you get such a good feel for this character and i i think it's it's i don't think i think they never you know it's a it's a kid's movie as 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 uh complex as this one might be like there, there there's never any doubt that that phoebus isn't going to do the right thing yeah but um but they do you know toy with this idea of like how can i not get fired and also like do what i think is right until it ultimately becomes clear that you that he can't kind of tread the middle but um but i think i think it's a great intro for him and that that first scene between him and and frollo is is a great character scene for a for a dialogue scene and a musical well just to conclude ollie's together so we can we can preach on or praise kevin klein for a second Every he has great chemistry with everyone in this movie. Like, <laughs> le, like legitimately, everyone in this movie, Kevin Klein has great chemistry with. Like I love him and Demi Moore when they're in when they're in Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like flirtation scene back and forth, and he's like, "I'm here to help you." Blah blah. blah. And then it turns like claim sanctuary. Like you see so many different the range of him as an actor, and I love his like buddy dynamic with Tom Holtz as yeah. quasi. Yeah. Like I think it's fantastic when they go searching for for the cave of miracles like it's just like they're they're bickering back and forth i it's i I love it Mm -hmm. i absolutely love it um or court of miracles sorry not cave miracles court of miracles um they're just yeah i i it's 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 incredible but that's that's kevin klein that's we we talked about him on our our patreon for a fish called wanda like him in this period is just like so hard to touch 
mm-hmm. in terms of comedic ability and just like pure, I think comedic charisma. Yeah. That's charm. The way. Charm. Yes. Again, I could jump around the songs. I'll be real quick with some of the songs. I love God Help the Outcast. Mm-hmm. Like, I think Esmeralda walking through the candles is one of the most beautiful shots in the whole. It's like very cinematic mm-hmm. when she's like walking by the candles. It's all just from Schwartz and them. It's it's great kind of turn of like she's the only one like praying for someone other than herself. Mm-hmm. When everyone else there is praying for I want this, I want that. She's praying for something to her people, to everyone else like her, like help them. Don't help me. And it, it's again, I think a lot of these songs in this movie out of ones we've talked about, there's, there's not, there's a lot of just like strong thematic elements throughout most of these songs in comparison to the previous ones. So you're dealing with kind of faith, you're dealing with religion, you're dealing with temptation, with lust, with love, with feeling it's all these different things are put into these songs. They're baked in. It's kind of incredible. Next thing I want to talk about is the Heaven's Light Hellfire sequence. Mm-hmm. I think Hellfire might be one of the best like animated sequences of of Disney's like canon, honestly. <laughs> like it's 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 intense mm-hmm. and it's it's gorgeous and dark and beautiful and just I think just that song alone elevates this movie to something completely different than what we've seen in this period. Anything else that you want to say? I'm gonna try. I got. There's one more thing. One more things I want to bring up. Uh, I mean, I think the uh, I think the climax is in, incredibly well done. The the breaking out of the chains and swinging down and grabbing her off the pyre and swinging her back up and yelling sanctuary. Everybody cheering them on and then the pouring the 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 ore the, the molten ore out of the gutters. It is. It's yeah. It's just. All, it, it is a wild action climax. It, it feels like, especially, you know, knowing that the Beauty and the Beast team did this, it does. It feels mm. like taking that kind of storming of the castle from Beauty and the Beast and like yes. and just like heightening it. Um, yes. And I mean, they've still got some of that kind of comedic stuff with the with the gargoyles similar Helping to out. Beauty yeah. and the Beast to kind of keep it from getting too scary for the kids. But mm-hmm. but yeah, once you get Frollo up there and the fire and and everything, it yeah it it, it feels like they're just heightening the um, the rooftop battle from from Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, and it, it, even just like it's the it's the it's Esmeralda helping Quasimodo out. It's it's Belle helping the Beast out, mm-hmm. and like and and the and the villain falls to their death. Yeah, and then Fe- Phoebus grabbing Quasimodo. Yeah, great stuff. Great stuff. Um, two things. I just I I misspoke earlier. It was Heaven's Light that comes back when quasi mm-hmm. uh sees the kiss but it's out there that comes back when quasi when the little girl like kind of like hugs him oh, okay yeah minkin brings the 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 melody of out there back which i think is incredible last thing but i think kind of sums up this movie in general what they do with conflict is there's a scene where quasi is hiding uh phoebus from frollo mm-hmm. and it's just a great suspense scene where you're wondering will frollo find phoebus here Mm -hmm. and you see that a lot in this movie and you haven't really seen that a lot in the previous films we've covered where you have these like really great dramatic scenes that you could take out of an animated film and actually play a scene this way if you wanted to in any movie of like a character lying or hiding something from someone it's a very dramatic thing that's not usually done in movies 
of this caliber, I feel like, at this period where, mm-hmm. where characters are actively lying and betrayal and all these things. It's, it's, it's really great um, with this. But yes, um, Onset Life. So Kevin Klein says it was such a fascinating project to work on. He thought that he would just come in and record his lines for the final movie. But he said he felt like a true collaborator in the making of it. Uh, Demi Moore felt the same way, feeling surprised to learn they would actually videotape her recordings to help them animate her character based on her gestures. Kevin Klein, and there's actually a video of this, would hold a sword the entire time when he would record dialogue, <laughs> would, like, swinging around while he was doing it. And they said it would actually kind of ruin uh, some of the takes that they would do because he'd be hitting stuff when he was like doing it. Early on in the recording process, Tom Holtz actually thought about quitting the project because he felt he couldn't give the creators what they were wanting. Originally, they wanted Quasimodo to have a deeper voice with a speech impediment, is what it was. But then they decided to have a more younger, lighter voice because he's being portrayed as 20 years old. Mm -hmm. And Holtz was also permitted to do his own singing for the film because he recorded his own demo for Out There. And I think he worked with Mencken and Schwartz enough where they're like, hey we think he can actually do this. Mm-hmm. Someone who didn't get that was Demi Moore because after me with Minkin and Schwartz and doing several demos, Moore told them, hey, just get someone else. <laughs> like, it's, it's going to be better. And so they hired New York City ca- cabaret singer Heidi Molinazer for the role. And it, it's a great the, vocal doubling. Like she, It really is. I, I know it's not Demi Moore, but it could Sounds be, like it it could be it Demi could Moore. Be. Yes, yes. That's that's one of the ones that's always surprised me over the years. It's like, oh, that's not her singing. Mm. They they and they they talk about that. They cast very well for that. For several of the actors, um, or for the recordings of the actors, they actually did them all over the country. For Tony J and several other actors, they were done in Los Angeles. For Kevin Klein, his were done in New York. And for Demi Moore, they were done wherever she was at the time. <laughs> uh they apparently did them in Florida for her, was one of the places. So I don't know if she was making strip teas there or something. I think it's around that time. I'm not sure. Uh, the opening sequence of the movie, which we talked about, is I think an incredible sequence, was one of the most complicated of the film. Initially, it was not a song. It was going to be long dialogue scenes that kind of explain the backstory of Quasi and Frollo. Mm-hmm. But Stephen Schwartz, who was working a lot with the story team, said, hey, I can make this a lot more interesting by just like putting this in a song. And he felt like it'd be a lot more, it'd be a lot easier to tell us information in a song, which kind of reinforces the idea I talked about earlier in the month about Howard Ashman saying it's easier to get exposition to the audience through song than it is through dialogue. Schwartz and Minkin for this, for this number would use Mozart's Requiem Mass as an inspiration. Funny enough, it's Mozart with Tom Holtz in the movie. Um, <laughs> the opening shot of, of the Bells of Notre Dame sequence had about 50 to 60 layers of animation. It was apparently the computer they used said that they could never like break it down, could handle so much information. The directors were proud to say it broke down twice on them because of the sequence. Uh, The Latin chants heard throughout the movie are actually adapted from real Gregorian chants, including a portion of the Dies Airy music that can be heard through Frollo when Frollo kills uh, Quasimodo's mother in this part. Mm -hmm. Dies Airy is, is kind of the, reoccurring um kind of notes and themes that will play through kind of de- it basically means death the death mm-hmm. theme essentially in terms of more inspiration for the music schwartz said that he was lyrically influenced by the lyricist yip harburg 
who wrote countless songs from the MGM musical Heyday, including several songs from the Wizard of Oz movie from 1939. He says that Topsy Turvy is the main example of this because Harburg was known for unusual rhyme schemes, and he has a lot of those in Topsy Turvy. So alongside Pocahontas, uh, storyboard work for Hunchback was among kind of the first to be made in the new Disney feature animation building in Burbank. Um, However, most animators were busy doing Lion King or Pocahontas. So they actually had to hire a lot of animators from outside of the Disney kind of group. And they were hired out Canada or the UK or United Kingdom to join the production. They also had to move a lot of stuff to a warehouse in Glendale again because there were so many people trying to build or kind of tell this story or create the story animation wise. Um, They hired a lot of people from Germany, France, Ireland, and specifically um, in Paris, they actually had a a satellite studio uh, of French artists, essentially. And they did about 20% of the film. And they would communicate similar way that we talked about for Aladdin with Glenn Keane and his kind of other, who did the Jasmine animation in Florida. Glenn Keane did the Aladdin stuff in LA. They had to communicate through fax and phone and everything. Uh, Don Hahn said that uh, the Paris team were, if they're ever lacking inspiration with the opening sequence of Notre Dame, they just go walk outside and see Notre Dame <laughs> and that would help, help them do it. And uh, meanwhile, at the feature animation studio in Florida, they were busy working on Mulan, but they also did several minutes of screen time with Frollo and Quasimodo for this. So it was like really much like a hodgepodge of LA, Paris, Florida, and all these other places around the world, essentially working on Hunchback was the thing because of how much was happening with the different, the, the, the amount of complex animation in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, during early development for the film, Trosdale and Wise realized they needed, needed crowds of people for the topsy-turvy sequence. And they actually realized they needed to use CGI to kind of do this. So um, someone created... Um, Kieran Joshi created a software called Crowd, which allowed them to create large-scale crowd scenes. And they basically, they had like six different versions of people, and they just repeated those over and over again. So if you watch the movie, you'll see that kind of like six or seven different things (laughs) of people just repeated throughout Mm -hmm. that sequence. After the Hellfire sequence was shown to the creative team, there was this big silence because they were shocked of how intense it was. And the animators like, have we gone too far? <laughs> and they're like, no, too no, no, no. they're like, no, 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 we love it. And they compared it to Night at Bald Mountain in Fantasia, mm-hmm. which was kind of the darkest moment in a Disney animation film at that point. Within the kind of animation group, they called it Mr. Frollo's Wild Ride. Because <laughs> he goes to hell. Yeah. And they were really worried about the sequence. Um, when they were taking it to the studio brass, specifically Michael Eisner and Roy Disney. And they're like, we can't with all these like arguments of like, why we should keep it in the movie, just knowing they were going to hate it. And they were shockingly surprised when they ended up loving the sequence. So they're like, okay, I guess we're going to keep it in there. All right. You sure? And, you sure that yeah. stays in? Okay. <laughs> yeah. And when commenting on the Hellfire sequence, Don Hahn said the song made Frollo one of the most complex characters in Disney's canon, a character who's motivated not by power and money because those are things he already has. He's motivated by 
the thing he can't have and it's this woman what if we made lust the motivation in this movie it's like in our in our children's film Film? yeah but (laughs) trust me she's gonna be really hot she's gonna pole dance at one point ah yes and when asked later about the dark nature of hellfire director kirk wise stated if we concentrated on trying to please everyone and not to offend a single soul the films would be so watered down they'd be making a we that we'd be making a Care Bear movie, Care Bears movie. That would be creative suicide. So with all that, that leads us to aftermath with this movie. So with certain scenes, they would they would screen test this film, and there are certain moments I had to kind of add more comedic beats in there. Uh, one of them being during the heavens light sequence, they had to add the gargoyles like drawing stuff mm-hmm. because kids got bored by quasi singing about what he wants about Mm -hmm. about love and everything um the kids are getting restless for the scene where frollo sings hellfire um the mpaa basically insisted that disney animators make esmeralda's clothing more well defined when she's shown in the fire because they didn't want her to seem nude is what it was (laughs) that was a big thing um the film was scheduled for a christmas release in 1995 but due to the departure of jeffrey katzenberg from the company he left mm. i think not long after lion king it was pushed the following summer and pretty much after lion king we talked about this on a hercules episode a few or a few years back is that disney made these premieres like extravagant like concerts basically mm. and so this movie actually premiered on uh at the superdome in new orleans on June 19th, 1996. And so they premiered to a massive crowd at the Superdome with six gigantic movie screens that were kind of placed throughout the arena. And afterwards, they had a parade of floats that came from Disney World, full of Disney World workers. And they took them from Jackson Square in New Orleans down the French Quarter in New Orleans for this big parade and celebration of Hunchback of Notre Dame. And the same exact day the movie opened in the U.S., Disney theme parks actually had a popular stage show start the exact same day and it would run for six straight years in Orlando. That's wild Mm -hmm. to essentially release your movie and some form of it on stage at your theme park this very same day. Yeah. I saw it. I saw it many times in, in Orlando. We're big fans. Yeah. I never saw it in Orlando. I I didn't start going Disney till after all that. So I missed it. Shame. Um, as part of the promotion of the film, Walt Disney Records shipped 2 million products, including sing-along home videos, soundtrack CDs, and the My First Read-Along novelized version of the film. Uh, upon release, The Hunchback was accompanied by a marketing campaign of more than $40 million with commercial tie-ins with Burger King, Payless Shoes, Nestle, and Mattel. By 1997, a year later, Disney earned approximately $500 million in profit with the spinoff products based off this film. But the movie was kind of seen box office wise as a disappointment. Um, it made only $325 million. Only $325 million? Only $325 million um, off a $70 million budget. It was because Lion King was so big two years ago. Mm-hmm. They're essentially expecting something as big. Um but with this movie, they actually sold tickets for the for the film at their Disney stores. That was like a new thing they oh, were doing. Wow. They're actually selling tickets at their Disney stores. Um, when the movie opened, it opened 
to $21 million the opening weekend behind Eraser starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> um, but it was, le- again, it was less than Pocahontas, less than Beauty and the Beast, and less than Lion King. Uh, and its second weekend, it was beat out by Nutty Professor and Eraser. But it beat out Striptease starring Demi Moore. <laughs> um, uh, the film initially made, like I said, 325 worldwide, but only $100 million in the U.S., um, 100.1, so it barely, barely made it. And critics were mixed on this movie. It 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 leaned more towards positive. Ebert said, gave it four stars and, and called it the best animated feature since Beauty and the Beast, a whirling, uplifting, thrilling story with a heart-touching message that emerges from the comedy and song. Gene Siskel gave it three and a half out of four stars, saying it's a surprisingly emotional, simplified version of the Victor Hugo novel with effective songs and yes, tasteful bits of humor. So it was well-received. Uh, it was even well-received in France for the most part. But audiences, however, were very mixed. A lot of people, specifically in the South, were very upset and wanted to boycott the movie. Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention voted overwhelmingly to, overwhelmingly to urge its 16 million members to boycott Disney films, theme parks, and merchandising. <laughs> Sound wow familiar. that's that's um, crazy yeah <laughs> why, why would a bunch of people get mad at some kids movies um the cause of protest stemmed for the from the company's domestic partnership policy and gay and lesbian themed days at walt disney world um, i'm glad we've moved past that as a culture in the yeah. years since yeah i'm glad they that's not all, an issue anymore southern baptists were also outraged over the casting to me more as esmeralda because she'd just done striptease hmm that's Wait it. till you see the movie, guys. She, <laughs> yeah, she does the striptease in the movie. But there was praise from several religious organizations uh, for the movie. Yeah, um, Archdeacon is like the only dude who's got it figured <laughs> out in like this whole movie. Yeah, I think at one point there was talk of that the the Frollo being the Archdeacon, but they changed it to a judge. Is what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, uh, 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 Louis P. Sheldon, the Presbyterian pastor and chairman of the Anaheim-based Traditional Values Coalition said, I am thrilled at what I hear about Hunchback, that Disney is seeking to honor Christianity and its role in Western civilization. I only pray it will, will accomplish much good in the minds and hearts of its viewers. So, yeah. but yeah, a lot of people were, yeah, just thought it was, was not appropriate for children, calling it vulgar and uh, disturbing. That definitely went over my head when I was a kid. I, I did not Same. remember any of that. Yeah. Same. Uh, it would only be nominated for one Oscar, and that was Best Original Musical or Comedy Score. Because hmm. they actually, at one point in the 90s, they actually broke it off. I was about to say, so I didn't a, remember that was a... Yeah, uh, there was a Best Original Musical for Drama and Best Original Musical for Comedy or Musical. Um, I guess it was because Minkin was winning all the Oscars, <laughs> I wonder. <laughs> like, guys, we've got to give somebody else we a gotta shot. Br- we got to break this up. Because after he... I was just say this. After he like stopped winning them, it came back to the just original. Yeah, it's like uh, let me get the actual when the break off happened. The break happened in '95, so that was after Disney had basically won five of the last seven. They broke it off into the original dramatic score, original musical, comedy score. '95 did that until '99 and stopped doing that. So it was only like four years they did that for. And yeah, so since the release of that, Hunchback is 
as we talked about, has been praised more and more as the years have gone on. Um, reports say, or one of the reports, I think after the release, I don't know how, how recent this is, Mencken said the opening musical number of The Bells of Notre Dame was the best opening number he had ever written for anything. And it's continued to have kind of life with the the dark the dark aspects of it and also the musical that's happened recently mm-hmm. now you know a little bit more about that than i do so what's what's the musical um well it's that? something it's it's something we kind of discussed like we had in uh our newsies episode which if you listened on uh, patreon where disney does these kind of out of town developments for broadway shows and it's one that they did at the paper mill playhouse which is where newsies was and it did very well but they've never it's just one of those they're like always talking about bringing to Broadway and it's just never quite like mm-hmm. like hit similar with Hercules kind of the same deal has been said they're, they're just like continuously workshopping it and they um, they they put on a production with uh, Deaf West and and did a uh, production uh, with hearing impaired actors um, and all of it very well received but um mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're gonna get you, you you can get a lot of Broadway geeks uh riled up by talking about whenever Hunchback's finally gonna come to Broadway. Yeah. But because it's one that like while still beloved, it's one that Disney Disney hasn't fully like promoted within their canon in some way. It mm-hmm. feels like what I'm reading. Not just the musical, but also like they said that like there's very there very rarely do you see appearances by any of the characters at Disney theme parks. Yes, I know they um, did. They recently did like a like a for like the marathon or something. They specifically mm. did like a like a throwback marathon day where if you were running like the marathon, oh. they would they only had like retired costumes out for oh, you wow. to like talk to and i know like like people were freaking out because the like claude frollo like huge claude frollo costume with like a giant head was out there um yeah but yeah the no you don't you don't see them very often in the parks yeah and it's one of the big music one of the big movies of the renaissance period that hasn't been remade yet or one of the big disney animation films that hasn't been remade yet that people are kind of asking for Mm -hmm. and it was announced in january 2019 that there would be a live action remake that josh gad was going to be producing yes and possibly playing quasimodo in 2021 he said that it was still in the works and getting closer but in 2023 (laughs) alan minken commented on have you heard this no i was i i thought you were talking about that poster that josh gad posted no what did he post he he posted like a fan poster with like a full cast on it. Oh wow! And, and he reposted it and then like oh, had no. to, and then had to go Don't back and be that. like, "This is all fake. None of this is real." <laughs> yeah. Oh man. It was no, it was it, it was like a you know how people do like the nightmare blunt rotation uh, meme. It was like my nightmare live cast. There are, there are a couple good ones. Peter <laughs> oh, Peter here's... Capaldi as Claude Frollo was an interesting one, but That's from not a bad the, one. for the most of it I was like, oh God, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem with fan casting, you know, it's like in in your head, it's like, oh that sounds good. And you're like, no, no, that doesn't work this year. <laughs> um no in twenty twenty three this year, Alan Minken commented on why the movie was taking so long to get made. And he said it's due to the original movie's content and themes. He goes it's a tough one because the Hunchback movie, the Hunchback story involves a lot of real, real issues that are important issues and should be explored. It should be explored to be discussed. 
And there has to be an agreement about how we deal with those issues. You know, do we do a hunchback without hellfire? I don't think so. So yeah. it sits in this limbo right now. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's it, the thing. It's, it's, yeah. if, if you remake it, people are going to, it's again, you had controversy with the other previously. Yeah. Nothing has changed. <laughs> You'll have the same stuff here. So I don't know, but <laughs> let's move on to the next section of this. What worked about this movie, Thomas? Uh, I mean, I, I think, I think Minkin and Schwartz is a fantastic combo. Uh, yeah. And in in so much as and and I mean we kind of praised Tim Rice for kind of sticking to the the Howard Ashman script, but um, it it with Stephen Schwartz feels like he's doing his own thing here, you know, um, and and so it is. It feels like Minkin is evolving. It feels like the movies are evolving, and we and it just feels it feels fresh, you know. Not that not yeah. that. Uh, not to say that Ashman at, at any point felt stale, but um, but it doesn't feel like they're they're continuing to like try and copy the 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 Howard Ashman blueprint, which I'm sure from like a financial point of view, uh, from a studio point of view, Disney probably would have liked to have have kept doing. Um, but yeah, like we talked about the framing the the musical with like one big kind of lesson song that's obviously something new that schwartz brought and something he does in wicked uh, but something that, that, <laughs> that a lot of musicals do um but it does make it feel a little bit more like it wraps it up in this kind of morality tale and and um it, it's 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 a nice addition to to kind of the musical format for these movies and then uh, on on Mankin's side, like I said, I think this is I think he's fine. He's really reached his kind of pinnacle of mm -hmm. as a as a as a film composer. It's it is you could you could take this score and I mean this this choir that he's conducting and and the uh, like just of this full orchestra. I mean it is it is huge. It sounds huge, and you could plop this in the score into any movie, and and yeah. I think you know people would have a hard time telling you it was a Disney movie. Um, I mean, yeah, no, I agree. I think I, the, the, the opening number is the big one where I like, when you watch that, it's so commanding or like dominating. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's like the bells are just like as it builds and then, and then Kendall's voice like hits a high, uh, hits the, 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 the bells of Notre Dame line. And then you hit the boom title. Dun, like dun, we're just dun. in it. Dun, dun, yeah. Dun. yeah it just and just keeps building and building and building and then like it just drops mm -hmm. and that's again that's a like a oh shit moment <laughs> for like again in comparison to it being a disney animated film they talked about how like after beauty and the beast this felt kind of like a hey let's show that animation's not just for kids basically mm -hmm. like let's make more darker let's make darker films and and it really pushes the envelope. I'm, I, it's, it is still to me watching this shocking. Like, yeah, let's make this as a kids movie. Because mm -hmm. like, yeah, it's like it's, it's a happy ending. But like, it's the stuff that's discussed within it that's so unique for this period. Like, there's not really a movie that Disney does in this period that kind of deals with all these different themes. Yeah. I think that's where like where it becomes more of a traditional musical where. A lot of music, and I guess why Schwartz is kind of a good person for this and Minkin as well, where you're discussing all these different thematic elements through song. Yeah. And that's where it makes it feels more like a musical than just a movie musical 
Um, Choose me or your pyre, be mine or you will burn. Like, come on. <laughs> That's wild. <laughs> That's wild. I was watching this at four or five years old, Thomas. That's wild to me. God have mercy um, on her. God have mercy on mercy me. On me. Like it's such a, like in Hellfire, he's such a com it's such a complex song. Like and, and, and for the character as well. Anyway, that's that's what we're animation's phenomenal, songs are phenomenal. Uh again, I'm gonna be kind of biased in this one, so I'm gonna ask you, Thomas, did anything not work about this movie? Something that came to me this time around is I think in you know in a in a stage musical and this might also be like a schwartz thing as his first kind of like uh not his first but i guess his his second uh uh still kind of getting into the the animated stuff um three songs for the narrator feels like too much for me interesting okay um in you know we're working in very limited space here it's a kids movie it's a hour and a half versus a three hour stage show and by the time we got to like court of miracles i was like i don't think i think i would rather have a song from another one of these characters than have a a, a clopan song interesting um i don't yeah. disagree with that that's the, the, that that is interesting kind of um like we don't have a phoebus pull. song uh we don't we we have like one Esmeralda song. I know they cut uh, they cut someday. Um, yes. Yeah. I, I I and I think it's because maybe I'm I'm more in tune with kind of the way that Minkin and and Ashman kind of established the blueprint. But it's a you know it, you get kind of your prologue song and then maybe one other like be our guest or something that is like here's mm-hmm. kind of an exposition song, uh, and then the rest are kind of emotion songs. So for there to be like three exposition songs in this one, I was like, oh, okay, this could That's we could we swap these out for could we swap like one of these out for and and I would probably say Court of Miracles, uh, would be the uh, I think is the weakest of the three. Not to say that it is particularly weak, but but that is something that hit me this time around. I was like, mm-hmm. I, I, it's curious that they picked three kind of narrator exposition songs over another emotional song somewhere. Yeah, and especially kind of in the, I think what's also surprising too is that that after a guy like like, like there's not really a, a big song in the third act is the mm-hmm. thing like once yeah. you get Hellfire and uh, Hellfire and Heaven's Light you have a guy like you in Court of Miracles but there but there's no like kind of big sh- there's no for good mm-hmm. is the thing there's no kind yes. of big yeah 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 well and that's something the, too uh, you know with Pocahontas they've got savages kind of your build up to the climax. Mm-hmm. But then they, but then they cut that. If I never knew you, um, which was kind of their for good in that one, you know, yeah. they're they're kind of big love ballad, and so you you go out on on like you go out on savages, which is kind of a, I mm-hmm. mean, it's a very intense song, but there's nothing happy <laughs> on the backside of it. Um, yeah, yeah. So basically, what I'm reading is that so with the songs that were cut, this is kind of a film facts thing. Um, this film, film facts is next, right? I can bring it. I can bring yeah. it next. Um, it's, it's kind of a little bit of anything that work in film facts, but no, apparently there were at least three songs that were in the movie that were cut. Someday being one, other two being in a place of miracles, and as long as there's a moon, uh, in a place of in a place of miracles, and as long as there's a moon, was between Esmeralda and Phoebus, and they were conceived as two love songs. Trosdale and Wise felt the song too much focus off of Quasimodo. 
and they decide to cut it and just have Clopin singing about sentencing, sentencing Phoebus and Quasimodo <laughs> to death is what it was. Yeah, let's get the um, focus back on Quasimodo. <laughs> let's have somebody talk about murdering him. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then someday, which was originally for the film, that ends up being on the credits of it of the movie. Yeah, hell yeah, um, it is. Was supposed to be sung in the cathedral, but instead it they cut that and for God help the outcast is what mm. it was. Um, so yeah, I guess we had two Phoebus songs we cut because you got like, Kevin Klein. Like, Kevin Klein was standing there in the booth, like, "You guys sure you don't want me to sing? I can sing. You can sing. I can sing. <laughs> I was in Pirates of uh, Penzance. Yeah, I can sing." Um, but yeah, so they cut three songs, and 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 you wonder, because yeah, the you don't really have a love song with these two characters, and if it's too, I guess that's the one thing you could say is that like while you have stuff with Phoebus and Esmeralda, I don't know if you have that moment that's strong enough to be like they're gonna be together forever. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. So maybe that would be helpful to have in there at some point because like you have the kiss, and that's and that might be enough because that's where you see Quasi's just. Cause it's all kind of from his perspective where you see him just like heartbroken. Um, but yeah, I or even better if- yet. I love, I love a three way song, uh, you know, uh, heart full of love from Lee Miz. Why you got Eponine looking on with the, oh, he yeah. was never mind to keep, he, he, give, throw me one of those a little, a little love <laughs> duet with Quasimodo looking on. That would have been fantastic. Oh, that's interesting. I like that. Anyway, but film facts. So, some references here because we talked about last last week how they reference other disney movies in this one mm-hmm. did you catch any of the references in this one it's I mean, in one scene there's three disney references in one scene i i, I clocked some some like characters in topsy-turvy day but now i can't remember uh who it was i did not a disney movie but i did catch the uh, achilles heel uh joke okay. this time around <laughs> And this is a film fact right there was that that was uh, a joke from that that uh I think that was a joke they found in the uh the um recording of it. I don't know if it was Kevin Klein or someone else that just he joked Achilles heel or like that's it. Let's do Achilles <laughs> as the name. Um no, they had um uh, well for one one reference they had the goofy holler. I think yes, twice the instead movie of in instead of a Wilhelm scream they've got the, the goofy holler. Yeah. But in one scene, you actually see Belle during out there when it's when the camera's going down to the to the, the town square. You see Belle walking, reading a book. Oh, that's fun because that's basically the same song. <laughs> yes, yes. You also see someone like carrying the magic carpet. Mm. Is what it is, and then you see two people. Sorry to say. Carrying Poom, Pumbaa on like a yeah. That's what I saw. Yeah, Pumbaa's, yeah, the, Pumbaa's carcass. Uh, uh, Pooh's carcass. Sorry to that. But yeah, Esmeralda has emerald green eyes. The reason being because Esmeralda is the Spanish and Portuguese word for emerald. During the Middle Ages, green eyes were often considered to be a sign of either magic, evil, and or witchcraft. Which explains why many of Disney's earlier villains also have green eyes. Hmm. And it was only restricted to most villains. They were the only ones that could have green eyes. Hmm. So this is why... She has green eyes because Frollo thinks she's evil. Is was one of the reasons why Frollo thinks she's evil because her green yeah. eyes. Yeah, so it, it, her whole color scheme is really interesting because when you go yeah. through kind of like color theory and like specifically like comic book uh, art and and uh, like early animation, you know, you had these rules of like the people are this and the, these two colors work well together and and but like her like 
purples and blues and pink and yeah. green and it all works really well it's it's a it's yeah. a really really nice design i think no i agree completely and versus his you know quasimodo's you've got your very bland like greens and khakis and then yeah. phoebus is gold <laughs> it's great a little bit of, and a little bit of blue there's a little bit yeah. of blue as well in there too and then and then red and black and a little bit of purple as well mm -hmm. for, for Frollo. yeah yeah i love his his cloak is like so black that instead of like shadows he's, it's got like purple sheen to it whenever wherever yeah. you would normally have like shadows and i think the animator uh her name escapes me but when she did it she actually created that outfit for for frollo and she wore it to see how it moved hmm. and they talked about in the commentary how like she actually built the hat and then if you watch the opening opening scenes of it all the hat's like too big and it gets smaller as the movie <laughs> okay, goes yeah, on, yeah, 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 smaller smaller yeah, okay yeah because yeah. yeah. it was just too big I have, um, I have i have one more fun fact if you're yeah, yeah go ahead yeah, yeah. uh the the music video for someday by all for one uh, -huh. uh is directed by anton fuqua no is it really yeah. mm -hmm. wow yeah, I guess he hadn't done movies. It yet was like yeah, it was point. like right before because this was what ninety six training was day. That, it was like was that, pop, was that through like propaganda films or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Because mm. because that's where Fincher and them were at before. I, I thought they were at the same place. Mm. Um, maybe not. Someone look it up. Emails. Um, but awards. So the Beatrice Strait Award, actor, actress, and the scenes that kills it. Who do you have here? Uh, you know what I I. Love to I love a love a good um Bill Fogerbachy appearance. Um he's one of the two he, he's Patrick Starr. Um he's you know a sitcom actor. Uh-huh. You know, Patrick. SpongeBob. Uh he's oh, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. one of the two guards, but he's like one of the two I think it's I think it's him and Jim Cummings are the two guards. So just like two absolute icons of voice acting. But um Oh, interesting. He's he's one of the guards, and uh, he he pops up like throughout. I I had never realized as a kid that it's kind of like the same two guards that are always like giving Phoebus trouble. But um, yes, yes. But I'm gonna throw so it, I'm gonna throw it to the, Bill Fogerbach. The, the guards, or yeah, oh yeah, I'll throw I'll throw Jim. I'm always happy to throw Jim's Cummings in there we'll, as well. We'll do the, as well, uh, one one more kind of film fact I forgot to mention this. Uh, one of the directors, Gary Trosdale, is the old man, cr old criminal that keeps getting trapped and stuff. Mm. <laughs> i'm free but yeah no yeah we'll go with the guards we'll go with the guards because everyone else seems to be kind of supporting is yeah. the thing or lead i think i think annie potts will be very interesting here yes because there's a lot to go here yes um so annie potts x-factor award supporting actor actress is the most memorable okay so who who what, what are the rules here i know it's tough <laughs> we're going main three we're going main four main five Oh man, um, I think I think Clopin would be supporting. I think Clopin would be supporting. I think the gargoyles are supporting. <sighs> it's like I want to make everyone supporting, but Quasimodo is the <laughs> thing. But I I don't know I don't know if that's the right call. Like no, I think your your three. It, I think your love triangle is your is your leads. leads. Yeah. Okay, we'll do that. Love Triangle or the leads, so everyone else. Then I think that leaves just Tony J. <laughs> as Frollo, would he not be? Would he not? I think be he's a lead. lead I think I think you're I think four. Yeah, I think you're four. I think I think, I think he, he's it's your kind lead of the villain. Con, I think it's the conflict of of yeah. these two people. 
I actually, I can't want to go back for a second. Where did David Ogden Styers count? Is he, is he, is he he's somewhere in between? I feel bad giving him like cameo because he's got like three big scenes. Um, so he's more supporting, is what you're yeah, saying? Yeah. Not, not, not Beatrice Strait. If he was like only in like Bells of Notre Dame, which I kind of in my mind when I rewatched it this time, I thought he was. And then he, every time he popped up again, I was like, oh hell yeah, more David Ogden Styers. Um, I, I, I can't think he's. I, th- I think he's beat more Beatrice Strait though. I honestly do. All right, well, then we got to give it to him if we go back to Beatrice Strait. We got to go backwards. Okay, Beatrice Strait, David Ogden Stars. All right, I'm wow. sorry, Bill. Sorry, we're, Bill we're really, we're really just like all over the place today, it feels like. Um, I apologize to the listeners. Um, David Ogden Stars for, for Beatrice Strait. Annie Potts. Okay, so Annie Potts, that really just leads Clopin. the Gargoyles and, and Clopin. I, I think it's Clopin. I like the Gargoyles. All right, yes. the, Charles Kimbrough passed away this year. I uh, was very lucky to work with him on the... Uh, reboot of murphy brown that nobody watched (laughs) my mom 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 loved it um yeah paul kendall as clopin i think while yes he has those three songs i think topsy-turvy and bells notre dame like those are those are two big massive numbers yeah okay and then that leads us to the Gene Hackman MVP award, the person who carries the movie director, actor, lyricist, composer, animator, etc. This is a tough one. This is a tough one. Cause I, the four, the four actors really makes this difficult, but it's like, this is one I'm tempted to be like, Oh, the directors, which I n- never do for an animated movie. But, um, but I mean, it is gorgeous. Like I'd love to throw one to the animators, but, um, I, I, I keep coming back to Tom Holtz and I, I, I keep being drawn back to him because I think mm-hmm. uh, like you were saying, there's a lot of different ways to kind of go with quasi. And I think this performance is is it works and, and him convincing them that he could sing it is is yep. bold, a bold move. And if I were Bill Simmons, I would have some great uh, metaphor here for Tom Holtz's career as like somebody who didn't come off the bench that often, but just sunk it every time he came off the bench. I mean, to have like animal house, Amadeus, throw so he's, parent, he's ro- parenthood he's ro- in there. He's, he's Robert Ori is what you're saying. He's, <laughs> he's big shot, Bob. Yeah. Uh, parenthood. I'll throw in there. I love he's him. He's great. Parenthood. In parenthood. I was waiting for a parenthood name drop. Cause he's great in parenthood. Uh, and this like, just like four movies you can retire on alone. Uh, financially. I don't know about that. We pay actors more, but, um, from a from a prestige <laughs> yeah uh aspect um it's pretty impressive yeah i mean he he he's amazing and so i i'll i'll go with you tony j was you. close i almost gave it tony j but tony j that would have been crazy but he he would have been a two-time winner in a in the month <laughs> thing but no i think it's tom holtz out, out there for me is is the high, i i do love hellfire but out there is is just impeccable i think yeah because i mean he he also like doesn't do much after this movie mm-hmm. like he, he he's only after hunchback he's in the sequel to hunchback which i haven't talked about and there's a reason why because it's not that good um he did like he acted in two movies after the hunchbacks movies so yeah um but he he is quite quite amazing in this film um I'll go with that because out there in heaven's light are so good. Um, and, and I would almost want to give it to the directors as well, because it's, it's like I, Gary Trosdale and Kirk wise, two guys, I think 
got the short and the stick of a little bit with Disney because they do Atlantis, I think, after this, and it bombs. They never have directed anything of that magnitude again. Um, and I, I've loved all their work, but we'll go with Tom Holtz on this. I'll side with you on that one. All right. Um, all right, final questions real quick. So we're casting a, a, a modern-day live-action remake of this. Josh Gad's producing, Thomas. <laughs> you don't have to pick Josh Gad. Josh Gad's not in it. I'm very sorry to, but to Josh the Gad's producer. But Josh Gad's producing it. He's okay. going to be producing it, but he didn't have to be in it, but he's producing it at least. So who are you going with in this movie? All right, I've I've got I've got the bunch. So you tell me who you want to hear, and I'll I'll drop you a name. What you, do you have the gargoyles as well? Or I do have, have I do have the gargoyles as well. Oh, let's start there. And I I, I Brandon and I discussed this earlier, but um, in an ideal world, we could just hold open auditions for actors of Romani descent, and and mm-hmm. then we can cast them from that. But that kind of defeats the purpose of this exercise of what we're doing yeah. here. So for Esmeralda and Clopin. Yeah. And, so yeah. so what I kind of tried to do here was just you know make sure we cast people of color in those roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, to kind of honor the or not, honor feels like a weird word, but you know, to to reflect, go along more, with yeah. the the yeah. discrimination and the racism in the story. But um, yeah. okay, gargoyles. Uh, I can't. I can never keep Victor and Hugo separate. Uh, Hugo is Jason Alexander. Hugo is Jason Alexander. Uh, Titus Burgess for Hugo. Ooh, I like that. Okay, Victor. Titus, by the way, my pitch for Titus, he was just in the second season of Schmigadoon. I, I mean, obviously, everyone loved him, and Kimmy Schmidt did very well on Broadway, but he was fantastic in season two of Schmigadoon. Like, really. I still need to watch Schmigadoon. I, that's what I've been meaning to watch. Um, Okay, next one. Laverne? Victor. Victor. Do, do, do Victor, yeah. Victor, uh, David Hyde Pierce. Okay. I like that one. I'm, I'm a big I got a lot of David Hyde Pierce stock so um, I'm always happy to bring him into something uh, um, Laverne Laverne uh, Maya Rudolph oh, okay so you went a little bit a little bit younger I guess but, but she can absolutely do whatever voice she wants to <laughs> she uh, like my thought was she could absolutely do like an older woman's voice if she if she wanted to have fun with it but I also just yeah. love Maya Rudolph so there yeah. you go um, Clopin. Clopin all right this is a this is a curveball but this is my personal pick i am a i was like i want clopin to be like french um like actually french um uh-huh. because i think in that leaked poster one of the one of the castings in that that fake poster that josh gad posted was sasha baron cohen and i was just like come on guys like uh love sasha baron cohen but let's not yeah. make him do another bad french accent for a movie um uh, there's a Belgian musician, a Belgian music artist and visual artist named Strome, uh, that I've been a huge fan of for a decade now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he is this just like lanky Belgian dude and oh, wow. is a fantastic dancer and is a fantastic performer. And I think he would just like body this role. I think he would be amazing. <laughs> kind of creepy. Like some of his music videos, like lean into like, he's very lanky and can move his body in weird I ways. I could see and this. This is good casting, Thomas. Thank this you. Is good casting. Yeah. That's a, that's a big pull right there <laughs> for some, for some, some people like, Oh my, that's amazing. I thought that I, I, I don't know this person. So this is great. Yeah. Check out some stray man music. Big fan. I will. I will. Yeah. 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 Okay, um, next we have, so Phoebus. Phoebus is next. 
Phoebus, you told me you had very strong feelings about Phoebus, and I have, I have a, strong, a feeling I, maybe. I, 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 let's see. Who do you have? I've got Glenn Powell. It's Glenn Powell's role to lose, oh, man. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. He, he, okay, he'd be good. I had Chris Pine. Okay. All right. I was just since there are no Phoebus songs, I was like, I, I don't, I don't need That's to worry fair. about someone who can sing. And Glenn Powell I, I would, would absolutely I kill would it in this role. That, I would remedy that in the remake is to give to give Phoebus a song. Mm-hmm. Glenn Powell would be good. I love this. It's, it's two people we always pick for 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 like the heroic white male roles. I feel like uh, <laughs> Glenn Powell or or Chris Pine. I will side with you because I haven't seen Chris Pine or I'm sorry, I haven't seen Glenn Powell in a role like this. Um, I think Chris Pine we probably had not exactly, but I think if like we've seen him in a musical with Into the Woods and he's the best mm-hmm. part of that movie. Um, so I, I I'll, <laughs> I'll go I'll go Glenn, Glenn Powell here for this one. So nice, I'll side with you. All right, but but Chris Pine, if Glenn Powell passes, we're we're offering it to Chris Pine. That's mm. the thing. Um, all right, Frollo. All right, Frollo. Uh, I I have to go with my my wife has brainwashed me towards uh, Broadway. Um, Patrick Page, uh, who I think did played Frollo in the Paper Mill Playhouse, but he was also um, in uh, the original Broadway cast of Hades Town. Just this dude with like a super deep voice, and he was also oh, okay. in season two of Schmigadoon. Um, just a fantastic voice. Yeah. Um, and just a great like villain character, and yeah, yeah. it's 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 got to be him in, in in my mind. Although I did like Peter Capaldi was like the only cast off of that uh poster. Where I was like, okay, yeah, I, I would I would buy that. Yeah, but I don't know if Peter Capaldi can sing. Is the thing somebody said? I I actually googled it when that poster came out, and he's put out a record at some point. I don't know. I didn't oh. listen to it. I don't know if it's actually. Some people put out records, and it's you know. <laughs> Doesn't mean they can sing, but yeah, you know, you know, you know, Joe Pesci has a Mike yeah, that's true. themed record. That's true, so. and I, hey, I love Jeff Bridges' country album, but that doesn't mean I'm casting him to play uh, Claude Frollo in this movie. <laughs> okay, so you're on Patrick Page. Okay, hey, I, 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 I like his resume. I'll tell you that I mm-hmm. like his resume, um, because I've listened to Hades Town, and I've. Uh, I, I've listened to his version of Hades Town, and I have also. He was also he was also Norman Osborn in the original Broadway cast of Spider Man Turn Off I, the Dark. That's what I was going to mention. I've listened to that as well. <laughs> surprisingly, okay. I'll, I'll well Patrick Page. I, I like he was also in the Heights. Apparently, the movie. Um, mm, in like yes, a yes, yes. Role. Yeah, I think he's the guy that's like buying up the 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 town or whatever. You know the the evil. Oh, um, interesting. Okay. Um, that makes sense. Okay, and then uh, Esmeralda. All right, Esmeralda. Uh, I w- went back and forth. I went back and forth between two. My my wife recommended Camila Mendez from uh from Riverdale, which I almost yeah. went with because apparently she can sing. She's sung in some Riverdale episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I was like, who else do? I was like, I'm trying to think of like an actor who's younger who like I didn't know could sing until they just like did a musical and, and like really impressed me. And I uh, thought of Alexandra ship. Okay. Cause I obviously knew her from like X-Men, which was like her first big break, but then I, she blew me away in tick, tick, boom. Mm-hmm. Um, she's about to be in Barbie. So we gotta, we gotta cast her in our, 
Hunchback yeah. movie quick before her stock gets too high. Yeah. No Vanessa Hudgens on that one either? No, I do like, I, you know, I love Vanessa Hudgens, but I you know, know you do. I, I can't cast, I. I can't cast Vanessa Hudgens in a movie where she only plays one role. She deserves three or four, you know? <laughs> I mean, just have her play all the different guard roles. That's what we should have done. <laughs> um, no, okay. I'll go with that. Alexander Ship. Uh, uh, Camilla Mendez is great. I mean, another one that'd be top is, is uh, Melissa Barrera mm-hmm. um, as well. Um, I still got to see her Carmen movie. And that, um, which one? The she was she was in that new version of Carmen with uh um, oh. with uh Paul Mescal. Paul Mescal. Paul Mescal. Yeah. Oh, I haven't heard of. Oh, I did see this at one point. I need to watch this. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because he, yeah, he's about to be in a musical. Merrily we roll along mm-hmm. in twenty in twenty years when it comes yeah. out. Um. Okay. So we're going with Alexander Ship. Who you said? She is great in Tick Tick Boom. Mm, all right. Uh. And mm-hmm. then uh, Quasimodo. It's funny that you should mention Merrily We Roll Along uh, because Daniel Radcliffe is is doing a stage production of Merrily We Roll Along right he now. He is. Yes. And uh, he is my he's he's my pick for Quasimodo. That's a good pick. That's a good pick. Um, Which actually I didn't find this out until after I picked him. But Tom Holtz's big break was being an equus on broadway it was it was <laughs> and that was that was radcliffe's big break on broadway as well in west end so mm-hmm. okay okay we'll go with that we'll go with that that's that's a solid cast i think i think disney might say hey can you give us more names mm. but i'll stick with you if, if they if you. they fight me on the patrick page thing i'm gonna say like oh like tony J was a name come on <laughs> Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. We're, you know, whose name? Alan Menken. That's who's the name. Yeah. That's what we're coming Glenn to Glenn Powell. Top Gun Maverick. You ever heard of it? Just make Tom Cruise for a little and see what, we'll see what happens. <laughs> um, all right. Does this film fit with any other genres, Thomas? Yeah, I mean, I think I think this is the first one that's that out of this kind of Disney, you know, renaissance or really any. It's, it's the first one that's like a historical it's it's not a fairy tale you know it is yes. it is like a it is a historical well i guess pocahontas was right. was before but, uh, this of one, the one of the ones we carry of the, the one we've we covered, covered for sure yeah, yes. yeah yeah but yeah i guess following up pocahontas and then going from this into mulan is this era where they were like all right we've done all the fairy tales let's go into like yeah historical fiction or or true life stories in in the case of pocahontas or um yeah. And and yeah, so I, I think it's got a different feel because of that. Like, there's some magical realism in it, but it's it's obviously not a fairy tale in in any way. Yeah, uh, and it's a it's a it's a you know we put a list together a while back about faith movies. I love a I love a challenging of faith movie, and I think this is one for sure. I agree. I agree. Oh, here's a question. This is really late, but it goes with final questions, I guess. Do you think the gargoyles are real? Or imaginary. I mean, they they help out with the up until they the, do help out up yeah. until the invasion of the castle. I would say, oh, they're imaginary. But then they, I think, when they, they when they're out. firing bullets at the guards, I think they they're pretty much confirmed to be real. I agree. I felt the same way. I was just like, wait, are they? Because every time like he walks in, it's like everything changes. I was like, oh, maybe they're just like he's moving them around and talking to him. But they become <laughs> active participants later on. Okay. Anyway, um, and then how does this film fit within the works of Alan Menken? What are we seeing? with this movie in comparison to the past two we've done or past including newsies i guess as well 
yeah i like i said i think this is the first time you really see like a like a new collaboration it, it you know i think especially coming off when he was still working on kind of like the the legacy of ashman with with projects like aladdin and even mm -hmm. you know they they kind of had the idea of working on newsies together kind of kicking around it, it it felt like especially after ashman's death the people that he was kind of working with weren't maybe pushing back on him in a collaborative way mm -hmm. you know it, it felt like we were getting like the alan minkin vision which was also like the minkin and ashman vision which was the way yeah. that they had come up together and and now with him especially on as like a second collaboration with schwartz i, I do think this feels like the the first or you know maybe the second time i don't particularly love the music in pocahontas um but mm -hmm. It, it this this feels like oh these these two creative minds have now created this and it and it yeah. feels like kind of the our first kind of post Ashman Minkin collaboration with another like really great yes songwriter because it feels like where it, where the music actually feels more intertwined with the story mm -hmm. is the thing in comparison I think because the thing in Aladdin it's like you have some of that but then you don't it's not fully there. Um, Newsies, we talked about that. How it's <laughs> mostly there, but then it's not there for two songs. Pocahontas, I don't, I guess, I don't, I don't know much, much about the music in terms of the structure standpoint. But this feels very like inherent in the story mm -hmm. is the thing, and and I think that's because you have Schwartz who, again, it's that tension talking about that, that Schwartz knows music and Minkin knows lyrics, and they kind of push back on one another. So I, mm -hmm. I, I kind of agree with all, all you said. But that is it on our Hunchback of Notre Dame episode, Thomas. Next week is the last week in our main series here, and we're talking about Tangled. It's We're going to be out of the Disney Renaissance period into a new period. Mm -hmm. And it's a movie that was not promoted <laughs> as a musical. So be ready for that. Um, but also be sure to check out our Patreon. Uh, last week, Thomas and I discussed Newsies. And not just because of strikes going on with the Writers Guild of America <laughs> and the SAG a and SAG AFTRA, just because it was part of our series, but it just happened that way. We talk about some strike stuff, but also the music that Minkin does in the movie and how Disney attempts to make a live action renaissance happen, and it fails miserably with Newsies. But Newsies li lives on, mm -hmm. as they say. Uh, but be sure to join our Patreon. We have the one dollar, five dollar, ten dollar levels. If you join the five dollar level, you will get the Newsies episode it's available that way so if you're just looking for that one it's five dollars a month so try it out thank you so much for being a part of the patreon for the ones that are it helps out tremendously and we hope you enjoy the exclusive content you're getting through the patreon uh also too be sure to get your tickets to the fan of the paradise screening at the new art theater on august 11th that we're co-sponsoring with landmark theaters tickets are on sale now buy them through their website uh i hope to see you all there it's gonna be a great showing but that's all we have for in this episode if you have any questions for us feel free to contact us at cinationpodcast at gmail.com send us your questions comments and if you're a new listener or a fan of the show and for some reason you haven't subscribed to us yet be sure to do so so you can stay updated on all of our new episodes you can subscribe to our show on our podcast spotify google podcast or wherever your podcast and if you haven't already be sure to write us a review on preferred podcast platform there's been a lot of talk tonight about what makes a monster and what makes a man, but I'll tell you this much. If you listen to a podcast and you enjoy it and you don't leave a review to recommend it to other people, you might, you might know which side of the spectrum you fall under. <laughs> you a lot of hellfire coming at you. That's, that's the big thing. 
Um, and finally, don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, TikTok, all those not so wonderful places, I guess you could say. <laughs> um, but Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. We hope you listen to our episodes soon. Bye.